0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program's live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, philosopher John Cagg and author Mark Greif discuss Nietzsche's ideals and how his experience of living relates to us as individuals in the 21st century. This event was recorded on October 16, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or visit our website at ciis.edu podcast.
1: Hello. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, John, for being grilled on stage. Um, I don't know how many people have had the opportunity to read the book yet, but it is a wonderful book, Hiking with Nietzsche. Very moving, I thought. Um, And also, I felt like this book was going to solve problems for me as someone who spent too much time reading Nietzsche when young and spends probably too much time reading him now. I thought, at last, somebody is going to get to the bottom of this business of loving Nietzsche. Fearing Nietzsche, wishing to be like Nietzsche. Can you tell the audience why you went to Switzerland recently? Twice? Twice. Twice. (laughs) The second time. The second time. time. The first. Or the first.
2: Um, So the story is um, the story of two philosophical pilgrimages in search of Frederick Nietzsche, one when I was 19, um, and the other when I was 37. Uh, both in Sils Maria, Switzerland, where Nietzsche had his summer home, uh, where he spent uh, most of the 1880s, really, and where he wrote Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And when I was 19, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, um, not a place where many philosophers grow up, but I was a philosophy student at Penn State. And at the end of my junior year, I was writing a thesis on Nietzsche and the will to power. And at 19, growing up in a very conservative uh, Pennsylvanian town, um, Nietzsche resonated with me, because Nietzsche also grew up in a very conservative Lutheran uh, town. And Nietzsche was their permission to do otherwise. So at the end of my junior year, uh, Doug Anderson, who you know, and Dan Conway, who was teaching me Nietzsche, he handed me an envelope, and in the envelope, there was 3,000 dollars. And they said, you should go to Switzerland. You've not been outside of the United States. You should do that. And uh, so I went uh, I went to Sils Maria. And they, had, they said to me, we already have the place set up. Um, you can stay in the Nietzsche house, which is a museum. Um, we contacted the curator, and you can sleep next to Nietzsche's room. <laughs> um, and that... That was, I thought, the coolest thing a professor had ever done for me. And it it was. It also turned out to be the most dangerous thing a professor had ever done for me.
1: I was going to say, was this good advice? You should go to Switzerland and and sleep in the room next to the one in which Nietzsche had written Thus Spake
2: Zarathustra? Good and bad advice. So um, when you go in search of the will to power, this idea that What human beings find most meaningful is the recreative or the, um, you know, creative enterprise of transfiguring yourself, recreating yourself. Um, When you go in search of that at 19, um, sometimes you can push it a little bit too far. Um, And the individualism that Nietzsche is known for, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, uh, can actually come just close to killing you.
1: (laughs) I was shocked in the book. I I anticipated that it would be an intellectual journey of, uh, you know, scars and wounds. But I didn't anticipate that your ear would actually come in for, yes, rough treatment. Can you say what happened with your ear?
2: Yeah, I can. So um, I had never gone backpacking before in my life. Um, And I was in the Alps. And I thought instead of taking the trails that I could make a, I, it, would be, it would be faster if I just took a straight line between uh, two cities about 25 miles away. Um, and this was one of the dumber things that i would ever done. But it turns out that Nietzsche oftentimes, when we're talking about our freedom <laughs> and radical freedom, the type that Nietzsche wants us to explore, it doesn't always look like um, the smartest thing.
1: It, it uh, is. Interpretation of his work.
2: Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but also that freedom is the ability to opt out of certain conventional paths. Um, that freedom in fact can be the, you know, the, to, the impulse to go against one's self interest. Um, what happened to your year? I got frostbite. It turns out that, uh, even in summer, when you get up to certain elevations, it can be very cold and I got lost and then it took me three days to get back to civilization. Um, So that did not deter me, however. So that was even before I got to the Nietzsche house. And I spent nine weeks uh, backpacking and exploring uh, what Nietzsche calls the ascetic ideal, which is this idea of self-deprivation or self-control And when Nietzsche says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, he's encouraging us to exercise our uh, strength in very radical ways. Um, And Nietzsche has a critique of the ascetic ideal, which is, in the the mouths of Christians, this ascetic ideal turns self-destructive. And in fact, weakness is elevated uh, rather than a sort of um, healthy strength. Or a strength of well-being, um, and so I was trying to tread that line, or trying to figure out how how hard I could push myself.
1: I mean, in the book, as I was reading it, it's quite dramatic, and and when the frostbite occurs, I thought, oh, this is a warning, right?
2: <laughs> Maybe it should have been. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What will become of your time in the you know in the Nietzsche house? Um, now you go back, of course, in the book. Can you can you explain that? Sure.
2: So. Um, after I finished my trek, my first trek at 19, um, I moved out of studying Nietzsche and into more moderate, what I took to be more moderate philosophers. So the writings of Thoreau and Emerson, who strangely was Nietzsche's hero, um, but also William James and John Dewey. So American philosophers. I took them to be much more, you know healthy and uh, cultivated a certain togetherness or, uh, you know, help me cultivate a certain togetherness in life. Um, And my 20s were spent um, studying those folks. But as you approach 40, you have moments where you think, perhaps I should go back to Nietzsche. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Um, so I'm 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 bathing my six-year-old or at the time four-year-old daughter Becca, and she reaches up with this little hand, and she grabs my ear and she goes, "Papa, what happened to your ear?" <laughs> and it just made me think, maybe I should see if Nietzsche, me, Becca, and Carol, my partner, can go back and hike the same trails. I wonder what would happen. <laughs> so. It, that, was, that was part of the reason. That was the initial reason to go back. You're still
1: here, it's important to say.
2: Nothing too terrible happened. Nothing too terrible. But happened. it
1: is dramatic, the various hikes that you make. Will you describe the high point and the low point of the return as we get them in the book? Of course, I don't want to take away the dr- uh, dramatic quality of the book. But Sure. Yeah. I'll try.
2: Okay. I mean, in part, <sighs> Nietzsche has this concept of the eternal return. Um, And the eternal return, at least in one rendering of it, is a thought experiment. Nietzsche says, a demon comes to you in your loneliest of lonelies and says the following words. He says, the demon says, can you imagine this moment relived exactly the same way in all of its detail? Not once, not twice, not a dozen times, but an infinite number of times. And then would that thought Elevate your soul, or would it crush you? That's the eternal return. It's a sort of existential challenge. And when I was 19, I thought that the only way to respond to the eternal return was through the will to power. In other words, when I talk to my students, my 19 year old students at UMass Lowell, and I say, What are the most meaningful moments of your lives? 19 year old men raise their hands and they say, Oh, when I scored that hockey shot, or when I hit that home run, or when I had really great sex, or when I did drugs—these are these are actually the responses I get. And in in part, this is Nietzsche's will to power—the moments in which uh, an instantiation of Nietzsche's will to power—moments moments that these students would be willing to live over exactly the same way, again and again and again, right? But. When I'm 37, um, with a four-year-old and a partner, uh, you come to realize that most of life is not about the exercising of the will to power. It's about something else. So the high point, to answer your question, the high point of the trip are glimpses where you can answer the eternal return in other ways, other than simply the exercising of the will to power. Those are the high points for me. And I think the low points are the times when you realize that no matter how you want to wrench yourself out of your 19-year-old self, your 19-year-old self sometimes is just lingering. So I think, and those are really low points for me.
1: Why? What would happen if your 19-year-old self were still there inside the adult?
2: Well, in part, the radical individualism that Nietzsche sometimes advocates or uh, for which he advocates, um, that doesn't sit well with conventional understandings of family or parenting. And my father, um, Jan, he left when I was four, just took off, gone. Like, and I didn't talk to him for 12 years. And I always hated him for that. But... In moments when your 19-year-old self comes back and says, hey, maybe the individualism of Nietzsche is good. At those moments, I came to understand my dad in a sort of new way. And in fact, I'm not that different from him in certain ways. So that's low, or it felt low at the time.
1: It's certainly conspicuous among the philosophers that a lot of them do not have kids. Or, even when they do, uh, some of them... Like in Rousseau's case, wind up as foundlings deposited on some church doorstep. Uh, And even in Emerson's case, he's a bit odd about his children, right? Insofar as Thoreau and his wife Lydian are taking care of them most of the time, and he's off giving lectures and so forth. Right. Speaking at places like the Center for Integral Studies in in San Francisco. (laughs) That's right. And, I mean, I do think a lot about this, because if you believe very strongly in the kind of ideal of even the the strenuous thinker, man or woman, um, it is hard to imagine futurity, right? A child who won't be you and whose life will, in some sense, be more important than yours, maybe, once they're born. Um, I don't know. How did you find yourself thinking about it? Like, there you are at the Nietzsche house and at the, the hotel, right? in Switzerland with your five-year-old daughter who has to like go pee when you're, you know, up in the, the Alpine gondola and all the rest of it. Yeah. Did you feel you had attained some higher form of life that Nietzsche never imagined? Or did you say to yourself like, Oh, this is strange.
2: Well, in in part, there were moments when I thought, oh, my God, can I just get rid of my child? (laughs) (laughs) Which is, is, Nietzsche says that we should ask ourselves the forbidden questions. And if you're a parent, and if you're doing equally shared parenting, which my father never did, but if you're you're actually there in, in it, in parenting... I think if we ask ourselves the forbidden questions, those illicit remarks like, gosh, I wish she would just go away, are very (laughs) honest moments. And I think that they can cause huge amounts of anxiety if we don't actually face up to them. And facing up to them might be the first step in actually being a happier parent. Um, And I think that that type of honesty is really important, but also incredibly disturbing. Um, Or it can be, especially in a culture that doesn't want to embrace that type of honesty. Um, So that's one thought about it. Nietzsche says, um, are you the type of man who deserves to have a child? Are you the self-conqueror? Nietzsche has this idea. And one of the reasons why Nietzsche might not have had kids is maybe the interpersonal works didn't work out for him, right? But another idea is that maybe he just had really, really high standards about the what you had to be in order to be a parent. A perfect self-conqueror? Like, I doubt, or to me, I doubt that most parents could check that box before they have kids. I am the perfect self-conqueror. I am the master of myself. Check. And then you have a child. No, at least for me, it was like, oh, my God, we're having a baby. And then nine months later, it, it happens. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then it then it. So, So in part, um, Nietzsche, I think, gives us, at moments, he gives us the space to ask really hard questions about ourselves. At other times, he's unrealistic about the expectations he has. For us as human beings, and for us as parents, I think.
1: Yeah, I have to say when I I think of those moments, and there are similar moments in um, Thoreau. You know his essay on chastity. I mean, these things just don't square with our world today. Yeah, and I think I'm like, geez, those guys really missed the boat on um, relationships <laughs> and children in some way, right? I mean, you know, when you said earlier there are no great philosophers from Central Pennsylvania uh i thought i thought well yeah or maybe yes it's rather you know people should be like well of course keg was from central pennsylvania right but i mean what does it mean do you do you consider yourself a professor of philosophy rather than a philosopher right one of the one of the taunts that turns up in in your favorite writers and thoreau and and Emerson and Nietzsche, right, where they say these things like, you know, what honor is left in teaching is because it was once honorable to just philosophize. Um, or is there a different model of a philosopher possible for us now who would believe in egalitarian parenting, egalitarianism, and, and in, um, yeah, like a dad philosopher? Was there a dad philosopher figure that is uh, conceivable for us, or does it just not belong to the, the realm of... The actual fathers of philosophy. What counts? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: No, I understand what you're uh, asking, I think. Yeah. So um, I think that contemporary philosophy risks jeopardizing its own relevance in a very real way by being just a bunch of professors. In other words, people who profess uh knowledge rather than, you know, talking with others. Um, so I think that initially philosophy was teaching. Um, I think that's how the ancients understood it. I also think the ancients understood it as a way of understanding the business of living and working through the business of living thoughtfully. And I th- and what I'd like to think about when I think about these books, and the books that you're writing as well, um, they don't fit standard academic models of philosophy, right? These are not peer-reviewed journals. These are books that people can read—thoughtful people, people who've never taken a philosophy class before, right? They, in order to think through their lives, um, and hopefully that there would be parents. Who actually take the time to also be philosophers, or philosophers who take the time mm. to be parents. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: I mean I wondered if you consider yourself part of a kind of moment or movement of books by people who are often professional philosophers, right? People who teach in university departments. To try to write books which integrate immediate experience, memoir in some ways. Or, I mean, even in the case of this book, it's funny, it's not quite memoir because it's not retrospective, it's something like um, experiment in the most basic way. You you are your lab rat, so to speak, right? right? And you set yourself t- to to go back to the place where you had been and something momentous had happened and see what happens again. But certainly the book is not alone in that there have been other books which have tried to take up this kind of experiential philosophical mandate. Um, But it's funny, in this book you talk about Emerson in the 1840s as actually engaging a moment, which I think you talk about as the experiential turn in philosophy, right? Um, Are we, do you think, in another such moment? Uh, where it, it, in fact, will become plausible and recognizable for university departments, too? They'll say, like, well, you don't just need peer-reviewed publications. You can you can write something in which you are hiking or surfing, as in a recent book on Sartre. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> or is that just not the right way to think about this at all?
2: Yeah, I think... Um I actually don't know if I see it as a trend. Um, just because I think that there are so few, few people doing it um, in disciplinary philosophy that it's still marginalized fairly actively. What I would like to see is people to believe that you can write in the first person and see that as a philosophical enterprise. So Augustine did it. Uh, I mean, like, we have a long Montaigne. Like, we have a long tradition of writing in the first person philosophically, um, and I'd like to return there, whether we call it philosophy or not. I really don't care, but uh, because I don't think that, or actually, maybe I do care about that. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I'd like to keep the term and expand it, or force it to expand. Um, but it seems strange to me that in the move away from history, in terms of philosophy's insistence, contemporary philosophy's insistence that it's, you know, recreating the wheel, uh, that we forget about all of these different forms that ha- that had respectability. So, aphoristic philosophy, like Nietzsche, Nietzsche's uh, mode, Nietzsche's multiple modes of doing philosophy, we just think we forget that aphorism and first-person accounts and parable parables and fiction all of these things can be different forms of the love of wisdom yeah
1: I, I wonder too, you know When I think so this is my optimistic or utopian moment or else it's just the books that I want you to write in future um, when I think about whatever it is that's different about the kinds of books you write and that I find exciting and so forth. I also ask myself about what the outside springs and sources are. Because um, if I think of the this kind of 19th century set of heroes, it's a peculiar set of things that they were reading or being inspired by. For the transcendentalists and for Nietzsche too, a lot of it is Eastern, right? It's crucial that they're reading Hindu texts and, and um, Buddhist texts and so forth um for Nietzsche too it's also music it has to be um is there some like outside upwelling influence that w- makes this moment different
2: I mean you've uh, so uh Mark at multiple points in two different books you say uh, you've said that um That transcendence is not a vertical issue, it's a horizontal issue. Or rather, it's an issue where instead of going somewhere else or uh, transcending in a sort of traditional way, uh, we go deeper in to experience. And I think um, what we need to think through, what happened in the 19th century, and you've pointed this out as well, is that... um, That when Nietzsche says, God is dead, um, he's born in 1844, he writes The Birth of Tragedy in 1872. Um, He's writing after Darwin writes The Origin of Species in 1858. Um, He's lived through German higher criticism, which basically says that we need to read the scriptures historically. He's, he's living through these things that make traditional n- mo- n- modes of transcendence impossible. And so the question is, how can we still manage some sort of existential meaning or how can we have some sort of, not even salvation, but sort of redemptive quality to our life? Um, not vertically, but horizontally or, or rather um, in experience. Um, so I think and which i think sort of explains the resonance or why these eastern texts would resonate so deeply with folks like schopenhauer and nietzsche and emerson and thoreau hmm.
1: i mean you you make me sound very dignified i feel no no i've read well, the like, i've read the books i'm like oh horizontal yeah. no but i i mean i wonder one thing i've been wondering about lately is to what extent there's a kind of obligation, even to take in the things in contemporary life that seem farcical, trivial, etc. Right? And and I mean, I lately I've been having it with um, rock and roll. We talked about this very briefly in the in the green room, but. Um, I think to myself, I'm like, well, if I were really to be honest about the things which seem to drive real emotion and passion and so forth, I would have to be like, why do I still listen to the same music that I was listening to when I was 19 over and over again? And it's such stupid music, too. Like, um, like why am I listening to Black Sabbath? You know? Why am I listening to The Doors? Um, the Damned. And so it turns out I like all this strangely theatrical like hail Satan kind of music um, still and it inspires some kind of feeling which to me is connected to whatever the philosophical feeling is in Nietzsche and indeed actually isn't there some connection between uh, the people in trench coats who are like reading Nietzsche on the back of the Greyhound bus and and black sabbath like they have pentagrams and things inscribed on their hats right um that at least that was my experience of the teen years but you know i wonder too there's this real tension in your books the last one and this one too between if you'll allow me between like truth and dignity in some way because you're like there is some kind of experiential truth in which i am i am genuinely in quest right and yet some of the forms in which I'm searching for it feel to me like they are not grand. They're not like warfare, right? They are tourism. Um, they're hiking. They're being with your kids and and noticing the piano in the hotel, right? I mean, there's a great chapter on the hotel piano. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. how do you reckon with
1: this? Like, do you, I mean, sometimes I just feel like a fool. I'm like, well, something's wrong with me that actually I'm listening to this stuff, you know?
2: Right. So, I mean, I think that... um, So, the first trip when I was 19 was at the Nietzsche house. It was at the museum where Nietzsche summered. Or rather, it was a house. Now it's a museum. Um, And it was fairly... It was fairly austere. And the second trip was made to the Waldhaus, which is not austere at all. It's uh, the place where Adorno and Benjamin and... um, Marcuse went on their Nietzschean pilgrimages. And it's this grand, you know, grand European hotel. And that's where we stayed on the second trip. And it was very ambivalent, or like the ambivalence about staying there. But I figured that Nietzsche had a problem with decadence. In other words, one of Nietzsche's, uh, you know, one of Nietzsche's diagnoses of the modern age is that we live in a decadent world and what to do in the face of that decadence Um, because we are complicit in the decadence all of us even if we're here right now we're complicit in it and uh, how do you make your way through it meaningfully Um, and in light of that there are several options you can pursue the ascetic ideal and starve yourself, and hike really hard, and live in austere conditions, you can do that, right? Or you can find uh, some sort of redemption in the mundane, in those moments when you just chase your daughter up over a hill and realize that she's actually quite content being naked, but, but you aren't, running, running outside in the Alps. she's come she's comfortable somehow (laughs) somehow somehow you've lost somehow you've lost that Mm. right uh, comfort but the the idea that oh my god my daughter is just this beautiful little being that's right there and it just takes a slight change in orientation to realize that maybe not a slight change in orientation well Um, maybe a radical radical change in in orientation orientation. i mean it's
1: funny because for me this makes me realize too uh how much i always like the comic nietzsche Um, And it's very hard to explain to people because they're like, Nietzsche. And I'm like, oh, Nietzsche, he's a a sweet, cuddly guy, you know, he's funny. But he is funny, actually, often. I mean, there's this other prophetic voice, which I like in different ways. But at the end of the day, let's say, uh, thus spake Zarathustra, always frightens me in a certain way, and and, um, I'm not prepared to go up to the mountain. But like the middle books, human all to human and stuff, those are funny, funny books um, about human folly and weakness and, and so forth and so on. Will you say what you like about *Thus Spake Zarathustra*? Can you win me over to? I'll try. To that book?
2: Yeah, I'll try. So, um, in Zarathustra, we usually think about him as the quintessential hermit or the quintessential uh, individual. But what we miss in that reading is that he's always shuttling between the mountaintop of individuality and the valleys of communal activity. And he's doing it for, I think at one point I tried to count how many times he goes up and down the mountain. (laughs) And I think I got like 27 times through the books. I mean 27 times going up and down and up and down because these are degenerate extremes. And um, you can easily lose your life or spend your life um, by, by yourself. And you can easily lose your life or spend your life dissolved in community. And it seems like preserving these two, finding some sort of middle ground between these two extremes is where the good stuff in life happens. And what I like, I mean, what I like about Nietzsche, what I like about some of these authors that you've mentioned um is that you get a real sense that when you are writing or when you're when you're reading their writing you get the real sense that there's a type of urgency about their writing and it's an existential urgency like we are spending you're spending your life right now like think about that like we are hell bent to the grave right now and you are spending this time right? Doing something like that's that. It, it, and, and you're like, good, this is good. But like, think about what it means to write an academic paper, right? Do you want to spend your life doing that? Like it, like no. I, I want to, well, no. I at least want to infuse your academic papers with existential meaning such that you don't get to the end of your life. And according to Thoreau, look back and think, Oh, I haven't lived. Like, you don't want to get to the end and think, oh, I have... And with Nietzsche, there's never a moment, right, where I feel, oh, he's just wasting his ink. Um, But when I read a lot of stuff today... (laughs) Not your stuff, obviously, but when I read a lot of academic stuff, I think, oh, my gosh, these people are wasting their lives.
1: Well, let's return if you will, to the eternal return, then. Because this, um, or the eternal recurrence, this has given me some trouble. So we had, we sort of left off, uh, when last we were with the eternal return, with your students who say, um, oh, yes, Professor, I would be happy to hit that extraordinarily admirable long home run again, and again, and again, throughout eternity. <laughs> True. <laughs> and That's you what say, they say. That's not what I asked, right? Yeah. That's not really what I asked. Um, There's a version, maybe, of the eternal return in which one seeks after a kind of daily reality that you could imagine repeating um, or to somehow come into the right relation to it, right? And this gets us towards the ordinary. What does it mean to actually live a life that's not just asceticism on the mountaintop and not just community gemutlich, you know, stoop? Um where you are the carrot in the stew. There's another account or maybe version of the eternal return, which has always terrified me in a different way, and that's the one that looks like you know what you find elsewhere maybe in Jonathan Edwards is like ascent to being in general. Or even in Nietzsche, that strange moment where he says, um, Oh, everybody thinks I'm so negative. <laughs> But really, I want to evolve to be a yay sayer to everything, right? To be able to say yes to everything. That may be a kind of mischaracterization of what he says there, but that's that's intense, dude. Like, if if in fact it doesn't matter what the instant is, or you can't know or decide what the instant is, that you have to live again and again and again and again and and the true kind of coming into harmony with it would be able would be to be able to will it no matter what it is that's hard for me even to to imagine myself getting to
2: so these two trips um the first one was structured around the will to power it's kind of a farce of the will to power things really do not go well on this first trip (laughs) it's the inadequacy of the will to power but on the second trip, there are moments of what Nietzsche calls the amor fati, I think. So the love of fate. And Nietzsche says that uh, in, order, in order to respond to the eternal return, um, it's not the case that most of our lives consist of t- times when we can exercise our will to power. Like most of our lives consists of, consist of times when we exercise the will to power and we hurt each other or someone else or we hurt ourselves, or our will to power comes up short, or times when we feel impotent or regretful. And then Nietzsche says, and here's the amor fati, he says, you must come to love your fate. In other words, you must come to love that which is most despicable, most embarrassing, most harassing about yourself. That's, that's like, whoa. And he says, what kind of... You know what kind of strength must you cultivate to carry your own weight, and I think that that's a—that's the type of thing that I think a thirty-seven-year-old not needs to come to, but in my case, um, I haven't mastered it. But I've—I now see it. I'm like, you know, I should—I need to get my head around what it means to. Love not just bear, but love those things that are most embarrassing to me, most despicable. Um.
1: All right. Well, let me put this to you uh, because I fear for myself a bit. I know just what you mean, I think, but I think of it in terms of, um, Gustave Flaubert, a great hero of mine and another of these figures, strangely from the 1850s, 60s, 70s and so forth. Um, I was teaching today Madame Bovary and trying to communicate this strange possibility that um, that somehow if you really wanted to get to the thing that you could rely upon and love um, in human life that for Flaubert the only thing that you can rely on in that way and learn to love and see in every person in every situation is um, human stupidity, human vanity, self-seeking. The one thing you can rely on everyone to do is not really to see anybody else's perspective but their own. Um, well, but, but of course, but this is the ultimate comic register. I mean, that, that what's pleasing about this, or what he's able to love, is not then that one is like, god, everyone is so stupid, but that one is like, everyone is so funny. Um, and I often feel this way. And friends will say to me, why do you keep laughing? Um, but it's very disturbing, um, especially because, I mean, everyone's a little funny. Like, like the, um, the current uh, government, um, there are many things, uh, evil too, but, but funny. Uh, funny in their incapacity to to see other people and very funny in in their repetitions and parrotings of a Flaubertian sense right you know what does it mean if someone tries to say something profound and winds up repeating something out of a fortune cookie or like a tea label you know what does it mean if people can't um, escape these kinds of joke structures where they're always delivering a punchline uh, against themselves Um, so yes in the public psychoanalysis of me have I attained maturity that uh, that, you can laugh that I just can laugh at everything?
2: I think that laughter. I think a certain type of laughter matters a great deal. Well, a- and for Nietzsche, won't I wind up
1: in a, a kind of passive, rocking armchair Norman Bates style? Laughing. I hope not. Uh, I and, hope not. And is this the situation of Nietzsche? Shall we talk about the breakdown? You, in the book, you're like, when he hugged the horse and collapsed to the pavement in Turin, it's, you're like,
2: it's overplayed. <laughs> I do. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you do think I, I mean, I Can think that when he hugs... Yes. <laughs> so Nietzsche, when he arrives in Turin, he, he moves in to... A, he, he was in Sils Maria, um, primarily by himself. And then he moves to Turin, and he returns to his father figure, Wagner... And plays the plays the piano by memory, Wagner by memory with his hands and with his elbows, and he attracts the attention of his neighbors and had i think that um there were many factors that led to Nietzsche's breakdown, one of which is the fact that he was in a community that I think didn't necessarily understand him um so that's one, one aspect I, I think that you, to go to your issue about the laughter though um, you're right to say that things are funny um, and tragically fu- uh, tra- I mean tragic com- uh, like I mean tragedy and comedy um, funny I, I I don't go the Flaubert route I go the Schopenhauer route in this way, Arthur Schopenhauer writes this uh, book called, or it's posthumous, but called Studies in Pessimism. And in the first, and I know it sounds like an upper, right? It's, 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 it's going to be <laughs> it's funny. Like don't masterpiece, don't worry. masterpiece, yes. But in the first chapter, uh, he says um, it's entitled On the Suffering of the World. And he says if there is one comment or one commonality that we can see, the very Buddhist... Um, observation that life is suffering and um, and then Schopenhauer spends nine pages convincing us that we're all suffering Um, and he says that it's kind of like watching the same theater performance over and over again which is kind of funny thought and then he says at the end of it maybe you should adjust yourself to thinking that we're all suffering maybe it would have good consequences for you it would adjust your expectations of the world for one secondly um, you could regard other people as people in the same penitentiary right and finally you could see yourselves as companions in misery which strangely enough seems really uh, no. this seems like the saddest moment but also the type of consolation that is fitted for human beings which is funny like, I mean, the fact that, like, we can, you know, see each other as companions in misery, and that's the only ethical community that we have, that's funny, I mean, and strange, and really sad. <laughs> um, so I think, I, I wonder, I, I wonder if the commonality is not suffering rather than, like, the, the farcical. Do you have a thought about that? Or I mean, what do you think? Well, I
1: wonder, I mean, this is great. I finally get to ask someone all my questions about Nietzsche, Uh, my real questions. Yeah, I, I, with the um, awareness of suffering, let's say, with the breakdown, it has always troubled me that um, I have all the practical thoughts, right? Why was this? At least all the things they tell you in the biographies. I'm like, syphilis, maybe it was syphilis. Madness, mental illness, etc., etc. Um, but then there is some part of me which I think I'm not supposed to give utterance to because it feels romantic or old-fashioned or something where I think, whoa, he went too far um, insofar as one is going to continue to live as a human being. He thought to the end of things, and that was that. Um, but it's a very strange thought, right? Uh, and like, what are you going to do then? just vegetate um and I feel it with Flaubert in the last book sorry I'm Flaubert obsessed you know um it's very useful that he drops dead in the middle of writing Bouvard and Pécuchet, because somehow you can't conceive a book that would go past it and in, in just copying down the follies
2: of the world is this too romantic a vision should I is the well, Lou Salome says pretty much what you so Lou was Nietzsche's uh Probably the woman that Nietzsche most wanted to end up with. Um, and she writes his first biography and says in the biography um, that his madness is a product not of any particular um, dementia or uh, illness, but rather a product of, of his philosophy. So the, the mixture of megalomania um, involved in the Ubermensch and then, or the will to power, and then the the self loathing of not being able to get there, and the the end, the feeling of passivity, having to embrace your fate, like these are these are schism creating thoughts, and if you push them far enough, you're you you have a break, um, or at least that's what she's she claimed. Um, I don't think it's romantic. um it, what I do think, however, is like in in terms of so I think about this notion of prelist, which in the ancient Christian community is a pilgrim um, confusing redemption, or rather confusing narcissism for redemption, or confusing self self importance for some sort of salvation, and I think that. Many people who read Nietzsche, me included when I was 19, suffered from prelist. And then I think Nietzsche at times suffered from prelist. So I think that's something to keep in mind as you try to think things through. What did you say to think to the end of things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a nice expression for it, to think to the end end of things.
1: Mm. Will you tell the audience what your next book is about to lighten Lighten the mood? Not, or, I will, yeah. Yes, yeah like, sure, the next book is about sin and death. And yeah, the, yeah it's, sin
2: and, it's not about Nietzsche. So I'm returning to the American philosophers, actually. And um, so I'm actually... The next book I'm writing is about um, William James, again. Um, so it's um, it's called uh, Six Souls, Healthy Minds. And it's much more like American philosophy, a love story. Um, and it basically tracks William James's life and his um the distinction that he makes in the varieties of religious experience between sick souls and healthy minds and how you can have a an imminent form of I don't know what the word is yet redemption salvation meaning but um that's the that's the next book and it's much brighter my mother is again happy with my <laughs> my, my mom's like my mother yes. reads this, and she, she's like, that was really dark, John. Yes. But I think, it, frankly, I think that going back between these two extremes where you move from, you know, lightness to dark is probably very Nietzschean.
1: It's like your Zarathustran uh, movement, up the mountain and down the mountain. I have to say, just in terms of a final reflection on the um, the differences of philosophy in the 21st century, it has often struck me that... Uh, Not so much the case for these major 19th century figures, though I guess Nietzsche's mom was alive. Um, There is something always uh, interesting now that we live in an era of greater lifespans that there seems to be a a greater likelihood for us that we will try to write something profound and self-disclosing, self-revealing, all the rest. And then inevitably, you're going to have to hear from one of your parents being like, I don't really think your childhood was like that. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It does give you a totally different sense of what what philosophical utterance would be.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.